This is pretty exciting because I get to tell my children and my grandchildren that I opened up for Paul Goodnight. So I am, yeah, not all of you could say that. Uh, I am extremely encouraged, first of all, just by the fact that everybody's here. This is encouraging on a lot of levels. Um, The fact that there's this many of you that are here at all different ages and stages of your marriages that are are here investing in, in your marriage. And when you're investing in your marriage, it means that you value it because you don't invest in something that you don't value. Um, so if, if, if we're looking for a, a sign of hope and health in marriages in the church, I would say that this is a sign of hope and health. Um, I, uh, I was joking around about opening up for Paul, but I do. This is, this is a privilege for me to get to introduce, um, introduce Paul tonight because Paul uh, is a friend um, a brother in the Lord. Um, I consider Paul a mentor, a discipler. Um, I've known Paul since before I came on staff at RBC back in whatever that was, 2003. Um, he has driven me to the hospital <laughs> um, when I had a kidney stone, and I was able to not vomit all over his car. He was, he was pretty quick at pulling over, and it was time for me to do that, so that was really good. Um, he has been an example, I know, to a lot of you and to myself of what a Christ-like uh, husband and father is. I've learned a tremendous amount from this man, and, uh, and I'm very thankful for that. And, you know, for those of you that know, have known Paul for a long time, um, his wisdom and his gentleness uh, have grown over the years, and they've not come easy. They've come through a lot of trial and tribulation. Um, but we have all been able to benefit from that in him. And um, we are, this is Paul's last booster. This is the, the last booster, a little bit like the Last Supper. Um, and and we, are, we are losing a treasure, at least permanent, like on the all-the-time permanent basis. I'll get him back here, don't worry. Um, we are losing a treasure in, in, in Paul Goodnight. So um, without further ado... I would love for you to hear from my brother. And uh, as he comes up here, I want to, yeah, you can give me a round of applause and I'll pray for him. <laughs> can I pray for you? Absolutely. All right, let's pray. He's going to say no to that. Like, you no, know, you can't, can't pray. pray for no, me. no, don't pray for me, please. <laughs> Heavenly Father, thank you so much uh, for this brother, for his life, for his ministry. Um, to me personally, to my family, but to this church, this church family over the years. Uh, we are so thankful for him, and uh, we're so thankful for the gifts that you've given him. And uh, we ask, God, that you would uh, bless him this evening, that the words that he speak, speaks, Father, would come from your spirit, um, and, Lord, that they would enter deep into our hearts and our minds and encourage us in our marriage relationships. And, uh, Father, that in that you would be glorified. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, here you are tonight. You don't know why you're here. You don't know what I'm going to say. So this is kind of like the marriage version of an Amway meeting. (laughs) Here we go. In 1993, I was living in Kissimmee, Florida, and I was working at a Bible college. And the school year had just stopped. And... uh, uh, and I used to tell the students this all the time, that if you think you're excited about the end of the school year, it's nothing in comparison to teachers and administrators. 
And so the school year stopped, so things were going well. And uh, my friend Matt King and I uh, decided to go play tennis. When we left to go, I already wasn't feeling all that great, but I'm like, you know, I'm so, so all in. We go to the tennis court and we're playing. And I'm starting to feel worse and worse. One reason is because Matt, Matt is beating me, and I hate to lose. And not only is Matt beating me, he's reminding me that he's beating me. And so now I'm being trashed on that thing. But more and more, I'm feeling badly, but I know I can't say to him, hey, I'm not feeling good here. That's why I'm losing, because, you know, that's this real weenie thing to do. So I couldn't do that. So, so we finished playing tennis, and, uh, and interestingly enough, Matt uh, is the uh, brother of my wife's first husband. <laughs> uh, so all kinds of connections there. We finish up playing tennis. I go home, and I'm, I'm not feeling good. I get to the apartment, and Lee looks at me. She says, wow, you just don't look good. And I'm like, thanks. <laughs> That's the way I wanted to be greeted. Uh, and so I, I get in there, and, and we get through dinner. And after dinner, I get so sick that I just, I, I, I am just heaving just beyond. And all of you just had dinner, so you love this story. Um, I, I am just throwing up like crazy, and, and, and it, it just goes on and on and on. Uh, to the point that I feel as if I'm now throwing up things I haven't even eaten yet. I mean, you know, that kind of thing. And Lee was so concerned, she went to bed and went to sleep. Um, <laughs> and, and, uh, and I continue this all night long. And, you know, trying to get to the dry thing and all that's going on. So she wakes up early in the morning and she hears this going on. And she comes in and she goes, I think you're sick. And I'm like, your college education was not wasted at all. Like this. So she gets me into the car, and we get to the hospital, and you know they determine that yes, I'm sick, and they uh, and they hook me up to IVs, and they give me you know fluids and that sort of thing, and the conclusion of that is they then say you'll be okay, probably like food poisoning, and they send me home. I go home, and I'm good for roughly 45 minutes, and it all starts again, and so I mean it was just horrible. So finally, they take me to the hospital, and after doing tests, they realize that it's an appendix issue. Uh, I'm thinking, wish we'd have figured that out a little bit earlier. Uh, and so I go through the appendix surgery, get out, out of that, and I'm, I'm there in the hospital. This is when they didn't, like, it wasn't in and out surgery like it is now. I think, you know, like it's a two-hour deal if you have an appendix now. But they kept me overnight. The next day, I'm still feeling terrible, but they, they're getting ready to send me home. And I'm thinking, I don't think I'm ready to go home. I feel so bad, but they're, I think I'm on the clock, so they send me home. I get home, and for the next two weeks, I, I proceed to lose 45 pounds. I am walking, I look like a poster child for anemics, and I'm, I'm you know, walking around like this. Uh, uh, if you remember the old Carol Burnett show, Burnett show, where many of you don't, but Tim Conway would walk like this. You know, I'm doing that every time, everywhere I go. And finally, at the end of that time, I am feeling so badly. And so I call my mom, who lives in Atlanta, my mom's a nurse, and I explain to her what's going on. She says, I, I think you have an abscess. And I said, would you call me? You know, <laughs> we just have a bad relationship. Uh, and she, she said, no, you have, I think you have an abscess. So I go, we go back to the hospital, and we get a second opinion. And a second opinion is somebody walks in and looks at you and says, yes, you're ugly too. <laughs> no. um, so the second opinion comes in, and this person does an examination, and he, they say, yes, we believe that you do have an abscess. So I now have a second surgery, and they remove something the size of a baseball out of my abdomen. Well, I, I wake up from the surgery. I'm in a room, and, and I wake up, and I'm, I'm in there, and I realize... Uh, many things. One is I do feel a little bit better, but I now have a scar that's about six inches going south from my belly button, and they've stapled it together. They did, I, maybe they told me they were going to do that. I just didn't know they did that. 
I'd never seen staples. And I, so my mind's like, how do they do that? They're like, you know, I, I don't know the staple thing, you know. But the worst thing was they had put a, a tube up my nose. And if you, how many of you had that? Aren't you glad you had dinner? Um, every time with one of those tubes, when you breathe, it feels like an ice cream headache. And so I'm attempting not to breathe, which is not going well. And, and so then eventually somebody comes in. They said, we're going to take the tube out. I'm like, praise Jesus. We're going to take out the tube. Knock me out. Here we go. They go, well, that's not what we do. I said, what do we do? They said, take a deep breath. I take a deep breath. I grab that thing and go, boom, like this. Like, I, 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 like this. Like, what was that? Like this. The two weeks that I experienced there were the most unbelievable pain physically that I had gone through in my life. Why do I tell that story? What's the point? Do you know how big your appendix is? Your appendix is about three and a half inches long. That's the average. The world record, I looked this up because it's just the way my mind works. <laughs> the world record is some guy in Croatia had one that was just over 10 inches. You know, and I'm assuming that guy sits around the bar there in Croatia waiting for people to tell their political stories, and then he tops it with like, well, you know, I did have the world's biggest appendix, you know, but... But typically, your appendix is only like this. And that little appendix caused so much pain in my body. And where we're going tonight is we're going to be talking about marriage as it relates to the body, and then in the big picture, how it relates to intimacy. The Bible has a lot to say about how marriage and the body work together. So we're going to start off in the book of Ephesians. And if you have it on your phone, you can go there, but I promise not to read anything that's not on your phone. Um, Ephesians chapter 5 is a section on marriage. Uh, And it's so profound when you go through there, you could spend a lot of time in Ephesians 5. After he said several things about marriage, you get to verse 30 where he says this. For we are members of his body, of his flesh, and of his bones. For this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This is a great mystery, but I speak concerning Christ and the church. In the middle of everything he's saying about marriage, verse 30 feels a little bit like some throw-in thing, like he just got off topic for a second. Like, you know, I don't even know why I said that. I just went down this road about the body. It says this. For we are members of his body, of his flesh, and of his bones. Why is he saying that? He's saying that to make a point that's so important to understand about where we're headed tonight. His point is this, that you and I, those of us in this room who are married, and I think we have some engaged couples here who will be down this road, we are the representation of Christ in the church. He says that in verse 32. But we are the representation or microcosm of the picture of the body of Christ that he talks about in Romans and he talks about in 1 Corinthians, where the whole body is fit together, and he's saying there's a complementary dynamic in the body of Christ where we make up the big picture of Christ. He's saying for those of us who are married, we then are the microcosm of that, and as husband and wife, we are a reflection of Christ and the church. He then follows that by quoting from Genesis chapter 3 where he says, A man shall leave his father and mother and cling to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. A picture picture of physical unity. And then he follows that by then saying, I speak a mystery, Christ and the church. 
And he's laying out this big picture for us to understand that our marriages represent so much more than just the fact that one of us does the lawn and the other one does the laundry. There's a much bigger picture that he's trying to give us here. And so tonight the topic is about intimacy, but where I want to go is in the much bigger picture of what intimacy entails. We will get to a conversation about physical intimacy towards the end of this, but intimacy in marriage takes in a much bigger picture. And it has to do with what's reflected in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. Paul's closing out a letter there and he says this, May your whole body, soul, and spirit be held blameless to the coming of Christ. Body, soul, and spirit. That little verse gives us insight into what we are as a body. We are not just the physical, we are also the emotional and the spiritual. Body, soul, and spirit. And it's my contention, if you've ever heard me speak on marriage, you've heard me say this. It's my contention that every healthy marriage is made up of those three things. That there is a physical dynamic to the relationship, there's an emotional dynamic to the relationship, and there's a spiritual dynamic to the relationship. And so we're going to parse those out and walk through them in light of the picture of intimacy, because every one of those creates intimacy in the marriage. Typically, if you say we're speaking on intimacy, most people think he's going to give the sex talk, whatever that is, all right? We're going to get to the sex talk, but even that has, is a picture of intimacy, not just physical oneness. And that's God's intention. So the first place we're going to go is we're going to talk about spiritual intimacy. And spiritual intimacy, in my opinion, is one of the hardest things for, for couples to relief, uh, to get to. Excuse me. It's my belief that the lack of spiritual intimacy is one of the greatest contributors to non-connection in marriage. The lack of spiritual intimacy is one of the greatest hindrances to couples not being able to connect in their relationship. And if we're going to use these three things, body, soul, and spirit, to me, they build off and they start with the spiritual. The spiritual groundwork has to be in place for the emotional and the spiritual, to, I mean, in the, in the physical to even make sense. Spiritual intimacy. Guys, for the most part, when spiritual intimacy is not happening in the marriage, it usually comes back to us. Not always, but usually. Because of our role in marriage and how we've been asked to be the spiritual leaders of our home and we've been given the place of headship in the home, it is the most normal jump in logic then to say, if it's not happening, you go to the head. If spiritual oneness is not taking place and there's not intimacy going on. And here's the interesting thing about men. We are competitive in almost every way you can imagine. If you put a man in sales and you say to him, your job is to sell... 50 widgets a month, he'll immediately think, I can beat that number. If you tell him to go into battle, he will die taking the hill. If you tell him to be the spiritual leader of his home, it's like you were just threatening to take away the remote. And that aspect of what we're called to, to lead in our homes, is so important because we get to minister our, to our wives in such a deep and abiding way. Guys, here is something I have never ever heard in marriage counseling. My husband talks about the Lord too much. It drives me crazy. Never, ever heard those words in marriage counseling. And we have the opportunity to live that out. In, in 1 John chapter 1, not the book of John, but 1 John, the letter, 
Our walk with Christ is bared out with our walk with each other. It's, it's being borne out in that. Verse, verse 7 of, of chapter 1 says this, But if we walk in the light as He is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus Christ, His Son, cleanses us from all sin. Let me read it. But if we walk in the light as He is in the light, we have fellowship. You would think that we have fellowship with Him. We do, but He's saying this, we have fellowship with one another. And what He's telling us is that the vertical has impact on the horizontal. That if we walk in the light as He is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. I heard an illustration years ago, and, it was, and, and so I'm going to ask you to do this, and you, many of you have probably seen this. But picture in your mind a triangle. And for your geometry nerds, we're going to picture an, an isosceles triangle, okay? Two equal sides. <clears throat> At the point is Christ. On either side is husband and wife. And the point of the illustration is, as a man and woman make it their goal to grow towards Christ spiritually, they cannot help but grow closer together. It's inevitable. Because if we walk in the light, as He is in the light, we have fellowship one with another. And so this picture of being called to minister and know Christ together gives us an opportunity to then experience a spiritual intimacy that contributes to the health of our relationship. If we both make it the priority to know Christ, it's amazing what it will do for our relationship. So here are some questions to ask yourselves. Do my spouse and I regularly talk about what Christ is doing in our lives? Is my spouse confident that I'm spending time reading the Bible on a regular basis? Do we pray together? Now, sometimes uh, in counseling sessions, I hear this. Somebody says, um, I don't really share about my spiritual life because it's so personal. I keep it very personal. That's the NIV for I don't have a spiritual life, so I have nothing to say. All right? <clears throat> no, we are called to share with each other in Christ. Why is praying so hard? If I were to ask for a raise of hands, and I'm not going to do this, of couple, and ask for the couples who on a regular basis pray together, I guarantee it would be less than 50%, and that's a very generous number. I get it. Why is it so hard? Well, there's several elements. There's the first gateway of getting past the fact that somebody's listening into your prayer. And so you never know, am I supposed to pray in English or Old English? You know, it's, it's like the these and thous. Where do I go with that, you know? And then you have to get past the thing like, am I going to pray and send them a message in my prayer? Like, oh, Lord, if she would just get her act together, you know, <laughs> that's a whole other dilemma that you're in in prayer, you know. And then to finally get to that place where, you know, okay, I'm really going to talk to God and knowing this person is going to listen in. The reason why that is so hard is this. If I'm praying with a group of guys in my small group, I can fool them. They don't know me well enough. My wife knows everything. I cannot fool her. And so if I try to act more spiritual in my prayers than I really am, she's over there like, okay, who's he talking to? <laughs> Don't let that keep you, though, from something that's so important. Just acknowledge it to each other. That praying together sometimes is un uneasy and it's hard work. But let me just say this. In your life, in your life, the people that you pray with will be the people that you will always be closest with. No matter what the community. If you have a praying community of people, those will be the people that you'll be closest to throughout your life. Why not make it your spouse? Why not have that outlet for each other? 
Because the Christian life is lived out in relationship with one another in marriage. Okay, the next intimacy has to do with the soul. The soul. Our soul is a seat of our will and emotion. So much flows out of it. An emotional connection is the depth of relationship. Having this, this emotional intimacy is the depth of a relationship that says, with you, I can be me. With you, I can just be me. I don't have to put on anything. I don't have to wonder what you think about me. There's that degree of comfort. I remember one time I was in a counseling session with a couple, and uh, she was already seeing another man. And he was hoping that by our meeting, she would somehow see the error of this affair that she was having, and she would return to him. That did not happen. But in this meeting, I started talking about emotional safety in relationships. And walking through this idea that emotional safety is, with you, I can be me. With you, even if we disagree, and even if we disagree passionately, it's okay. Because I believe that until I can disagree with you, I will never give you all of me. If I think it's not okay to disagree with you, you'll never get all of me. But if I know it's okay for me to say something different than what you think, then we're okay. And I'm walking her through this whole thing about what true emotional safety looks like. And I look up and she's crying. And through tears, she says, I have never had anyone like that in my life. Ever. And all of us desperately want that. And many of us live with the unspoken fear that if you really knew me, you wouldn't like me. And so we have to create a virtual us that we hope other people will like. There's a writer that I like to list, uh, read, and his name is Donald Miller. His most famous book was Blue Like Jazz. Uh, he had another one. He, he lived with a friend of mine at one point, and from th that experience, he wrote a book called To Own a Dragon about his own experience about growing up without a dad. But the last book that I read of his was a book called Scary Close. And in this, it's talking about his journey as a man in his 40s getting married for the first time. And realizing that the woman that he's marrying only wants to know the real him. She does not care that he is a well-known author and speaker. She only wants to know the real him. And what he knows about himself is that his track record, the wake of his relational life, is that he's blown up every relationship that he's been in. And he knows that he's the one who's done it. So he goes to see a counselor, and he's talking about this. And the counselor draws a circle up on the on the board for him. And he said, this circle represents who you really are, the real you. Not the fake you, the made up of who you really are and what you really think. And then he did one more circle around that. And he said, and this circle represents the layer of what you want people to think you are. And Donald Miller said that what he wanted was for people to think he was funny and that he was the smartest guy in the room. And that he'd worked really hard to convince people of that. And he was afraid for anybody to know the inner part. And I'm here to tell you that my experience says that most people spend a lot of their life trying to figure out how to get people to know the outer circle and never let them know the inner circle. And marriage should be the place where we get to do that. Marriage should be the place where I get to know you. Emotional safety. Let me give you three hindrances to, to emotional safety as I walk through with uh, couples in, in counseling. The first great hindrance is shame. Shame. 
If I could draw a thing up here and I had, in the middle, I had today and I had an arrow pointing to yesterday and arrow pointing to tomorrow. I actually walked the high school students through this recently at their conference. So we have today, we have an arrow pointing backwards to yesterday, and then we have an arrow pointing forward to tomorrow. One man has said that the more, most men crucify themselves between two thieves every day, the regrets of yesterday and the fears of tomorrow. And the regrets of yesterday always create shame. The things that we regret are shameful things. If I ask you right now to think about something that you regret you'll immediately feel some degree of shame with that, and you'll work really hard not to remember it, because none of us like that. And shame makes me fearful about the future, because if I made this mistake, will I do it again? And many of us have experienced shame in our life that's been given to us related to, by other people throughout our life. Maybe the home in which we grew, uh, maybe uh, a job situation. Shame can come from a, a variety of sources, but if it comes from my spouse it is so much more deeply hurt. Because shame has that impact on us. You know, Adam and Eve, when they realized that they were naked, it says that they were ashamed, and the first thing they did was they wanted to go into hiding. Because shame sends us into hiding. If you're the source of my shame, I will deem you as unsafe. And I will not want to be emotionally intimate with you. Statements like this. My dad was handy at fixing things. I kind of thought all men just knew how to do that. For some people, that immediately sends them to shame. Like, I don't measure up to your dad. The Myers are going to Europe again. Maybe you need to think about another job. Wasn't it great being at my sister's? She really knows how to make a house feel like a home. Or when a man checks out another woman, not like just notices her, but checks her out, it creates shame. And so if you're the source of my shame, I deem you as unsafe, and I will give you the Heisman. I will keep you away. The second area that I see uh, that, that contributes to emotional uh, Paralysis within a relationship is uncontrolled schedules. I won't spend a lot of time here, but I said this when I preached the last time. We live in a crazy world in Northern Virginia. And if we don't take control of our schedules, nobody else will. And it's not okay to just say we're too busy. That's not okay. There has to be a solution to that. In the book His Needs, Her Needs, Willard Harvey, excuse me, Willard Harley, Harley wrote this. The average couple, when they were dating, spent 15 hours a week with each other. The average marriage couple, married couple spends two hours a week just with each other. It's a matter of priorities. The third and last part of this thing about uh, emotional safety is uh, unforgiveness. When there is a debt that sits between you and the other person and it's not dealt with. In 1 Corinthians verse 13, chapter 13, what we call the love chapter, which is not about marriage, but it applies here. We're told that love does not keep a record of wrong. And that statement that love does not keep a record of wrong implies in the wording that we forgive even before we're being asked for forgiveness. It's a proactive part of being choosing that I'm going to forgive the things that other people have wronged me with. 
A number of years ago, I had a prominent person at Reston Bible Church say some things about me that were really hurtful. And he happened to say them to a lot of people. And it's actually the thing that sort of began the journey of me uh, stepping down as the worship leader at Reston Bible Church. The thing that made it so hurtful was the fact that he and I were friends. We'd known each other for 10 years. We had spent time in each other's homes. We had spent a lot of time outside of just the normal ministry things, getting, getting to know each other. But I remember when this all happened of having a choice about forgiveness. And I decided that I was going to forgive him no matter what. He came to me and asked for forgiveness. But even before he came, I had already forgiven him. And the release that you feel when you choose the journey of forgiveness is unlike any other release. Not too long after that, I was preaching at another church and he happened to be there. Afterwards, he came up and he gave me a hug, and it was a very sincere hug, and my hug back to him, and I'm not a hugger if you know me, uh, was very sincere. If he were to call me to, tomorrow and say, Paul, I need you to help me with something, I would go see, I would go do it. Because operating in forgiveness for us gives us an opportunity to make the slate cleared again, and where we get to operate in a way that really looks like intimacy. And my guess is, in some of your marriages, there's a record of wrong that may be fairly long. And the only way that goes away is by forgiveness. Because then forgiveness says, I reckoned it to be gone. God says of us that He has removed our sin as far as the east is from the west. And He says He will never, ever place it to our account. It's gone as far as He's concerned. I've said this before, but... A lot of us have this idea that one day we're going to be in heaven, everything's going to be going great, and then God's going to call a timeout. Today, we're going to review all of Paul Goodnight's sin, and we're going to put them up on the big screen. Well, that would be a good, a good explanation for why we call it eternity, right? <clears throat> no, he's not going to do that, because he says, I've removed it as far as the east is from the and I will never place it to your account. It is never going to be replayed for our shame. And that's what forgiveness is. I never place it to your account. I acted and reckoned it to be gone. All right, let's finish up with physical intimacy. 1 Corinthians chapter 7. To even talk about physical intimacy literally has to have the first two components for it to even make sense. But let me read a section in 1 uh, 1 Corinthians 7, related to the, uh, the sexual dynamic of marriage. It says this, Now concerning the things of which you wrote to me, it's good for a man not to touch a woman. So there you go. <laughs> no, okay. <clears throat> <clears throat> Nevertheless, because of sexual immorality, let each man have his own wife, and let each woman have her own husband. Let the husband render to his wife the affection due her, and likewise also the wife to her husband. The wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. And likewise, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. Do not deprive one another except with consent for a time that you may give yourselves to fasting and prayer and come together again so that Satan does not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. There are so much in here. And let me see if I could just quickly parse through some of it. Uh, if you've ever been in pre-marriage counseling with me, you're getting ready to get a review because I walked every couple. Uh, how many of you in here actually have done pre-marriage counseling with me? Yeah, 6,000. Okay. <clears throat> <laughs> 
such significant things in a very small package right here. The first thing that stands out is this. The wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. And likewise, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. My body belongs to Melissa. Melissa's body belongs to me. Obviously, I got the better part of the deal. But it's a picture of giving yourself away. It's a picture of I am there for your pleasure, not my pleasure. In marriage counseling, I've had couples meet with me and they want to talk about struggles in their intimacy, their physical intimacy. And inevitably in that conversation, one of them will say, they're not meeting my needs. And we call a timeout at that point. And I say to them, that's not the point. The point is, are you meeting their needs? It's about giving your life away. That's the picture all throughout Scripture. We constantly give ourselves away. And so I am not in the marriage bed to take something from somebody. I am in the marriage bed to give something to someone. And it even answers sort of the question, like, what's okay and not okay in the marriage bed? Because if I'm asking somebody to do something that they are uncomfortable to do, now I've become a taker, not a giver. I'd love to go down the road where that even goes in the whole world of pornography, but that's not the point tonight. But we've been asked to give our lives away. If he's then saying to us that we ought to be able to be givers in our relationship, then it would make sense that we'd be able to talk about sex with our spouse. I've discovered that married couples can talk about a lot of things. This is not one of them. We know what we're doing here. <laughs> you ought to be able to talk about it. You ought to be able to talk about things you like or don't like. You ought to be able to talk about the fact that, hey, we've, we're changing over time. There's great books out there. There's a book by Ed Wheat uh, called uh, um, Intended for Pleasure. Really good book to read. There's one by Kevin Lehman called um, uh, Sheet Music. Uh, use that as an opportunity to kind of engage in the conversation. The next thing that I want to point out from this, this section. Let the husband, verse, verse 3, let the husband render to his wife the affection due her, and likewise also the wife to her husband. Affection. Let the husband render to his wife the affection due her, and that's an emotional component. And likewise, let the wife render to her husband the affection due him. Now, that's kind of weird. When we think of affection and emotion, we usually tag the women with that one. They're the emotional ones. We need to meet their emotions. <laughs> like men are Neanderthals and we have no emotion. No. Men desire emotional connection. The statement that men have sex to feel close and women feel close to have sex, that may be a true statement. I, you know, probably statistically it is. But men and women both are looking for emotional connection in relationships. And affection is the idea of that we are connected not just for the purpose of sex. We enjoy holding hands. We sit together on the sofa. We rub each other's feet, whatever it may be. And it doesn't always have to have an end game. The saddest words I've ever heard in marriage counseling was when a woman said this, whenever he's nice to me, I know what he wants. How would you not feel like a prostitute? But some of you are thinking that right now. That that's the story in your home. And I'm here to tell you, it's not just women. I've had more than one man say to me, I don't feel close to her, and so the thought of having sex is something I just don't desire. Because of shame. Because of all the other things we just talked about. 
and there's not a closeness in the relationship. Verse 5. Do not deprive one another except with consent for a time that you may give yourselves to fasting and prayer and come together again so that Satan does not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. <laughs> I've had couples ask me, so, so what's normal? How often per week? I'm like, I don't want to have that conversation, nor do I want to know that about you, okay? <clears throat> but it sounds like to me in the reading that it's a regular part of your marriage. I've had couples say, we're too busy to have sex. And I've said to them, yeah, you're too busy. Because there's a part of it, according to this verse, that's even as a protection for your marriage. But unfortunately, in the wording of this, it kind of sounds like this. There's really like these spiritual things like fasting and praying, and then there's sex over here. It's like, God would really like you doing this. He knows you're going to do that, but he'd really like you to be doing you know, the, the fasting and prayer thing because that sounds so much more spiritual. Let me reference back to where we started in Ephesians chapter 5. In Ephesians 5, when he says... A man shall leave his father and mother and cling to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. It is right after that that he then says, I speak a mystery, Christ in the church. And so from that, what we know is that even physical intimacy is a picture of Christ in the church. And it's my contention that only Christians, only believers can experience sex the way God designed it to be experienced. Because it's potentially at that time that you are physically emotionally and spiritually intimate at the same time. And only believers can experience that. On at least five occasions, I've had the opportunity to do pre-marriage counseling for couples who are not believers. I'm like, if you're going to come in my office and let me talk about Jesus over and over, absolutely, I will do your pre-marriage counseling. And so I'm meeting with this couple one time. His name was Frank. He was really funny. He was a guy from Philadelphia. And I think her name was Megan, if I remember correctly. So in my pre-marriage counseling, I always cover this chapter. Well, they're living together, so I'm pretty sure this train has already left the station, but nonetheless, here we go. The whole time I'm talking about it, she won't even make eye contact with me. She's looking at the floor the whole time. He's sitting in the chair in, in my office, and I had these chairs that had arms on him. He's kind of hanging back like this, and he just keeps going, huh, hmm, oh, really, hmm, like this. And she just keeps looking at him like, what are you doing? Like this, you know. And finally, when I take a breath, he says, I have a question. Now she's really staring him down. He says, this is what I think I'm hearing you say. It's not okay, it's not okay, it's not okay, it's not okay, it's not okay to have sex. You say, I do, and now it's okay. He says, I don't get that. And I said, Frank, that's a great question. It was like a softball for the gospel. But it's the question that many people outside of Christ, what's the deal with you Christians and the sex thing? As my sister used to laugh about the Baptist church, at the Baptist church, they'd say, if sex could lead to dancing. <laughs> so... <clears throat> But what's the deal? <clears throat> I said, Frank, let me explain to you this way. For those of us who know Christ as our Savior, we have certain benefits that people outside of Christ do not have. We know that our sins are completely forgiven. We know that Christ has paid for them. We know that heaven is our home guaranteed. We have the opportunity to know the God of the universe. He hears our prayers. And if you're not in Christ, you do not have any of those things. And so he's created this picture that he's calling Christ in the church, which he says is marriage. And it's going to be a reflection. It's an illustration in an earthly way of this heavenly picture. And so for people that are in Christ, and I mean, in, in our marriages, we have certain benefits that, the non that the, those outside of the marriage don't have. And one of those is physical intimacy. I finished that and he went, oh, <laughs> that was all he said. <laughs> she wanted out of there desperately. <laughs> but it's a great picture. It's a great question. He's given us intimacy because it's a picture of Christ in the church. 
It's part of what we get to enjoy as husband and wife as a reflection. And so when it comes together where we are spiritually intimate and we are emotionally close and intimate, and then we have the physical aspect of the relationship, whoa, there you go. And God made it unnecessarily beautiful. And he did not do that for the animal kingdom. And every tribe, people, group all over the world recognizes beauty. It's universal. If we brought people in this auditorium from all over the world and we put pictures up on the screen and we brought up a picture of a sunset over the ocean, everybody in the room would go, why? It's universal. We all know what beauty is. And he made sex unnecessarily beautiful. It's not about procreation. It's unnecessarily beautiful for those of us in Christ. In Hebrews, it says the marriage bed is undefiled. Marriage bed is the word porneo, which we get the word pornography. It's saying the act of sex is undefiled. God's stamp of approval. He's the one who created it. It was before the fall. Be fruitful, multiply. I think his sex has to be involved in that. Intimacy. Real, real intimacy. Let me close out with this. John chapter 15. Just been meditating on this in the last several weeks. I'm convinced John chapter 15 is a book that you could potentially spend your entire life in. Starts off this way. I'm not going to read the whole thing. I am the true vine, and my father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away, and every branch that bears fruit, he prunes that it may bear more fruit. You are already clean, you're already saved, because of the word which I've spoken to you. Then, verse 4. Abide in me, and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit of itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. If we are the picture of Christ in the church, then everything we understand about what Christ in the church is supposed to be, we get to have in our marriages. And he says, abide in me. Abide. The word abide means settle down and be at home. In my family room, I have a leather recliner. It's my chair. It's getting ready to become my son's chair because I can't take it to Florida. We have too much stuff already. (laughs) But it's my chair. If, If when I come in the room, if somebody else is sitting in that chair, they get out of that chair. Why? It's my chair. When you look at my chair when I'm not there, there is this indentation. And it's off, off to the side. I'm like, I don't even sit straight in the chair, you know? But it's, I've sat in it so long that my 200 pounds, roughly, has made that indentation. I abide there. I settle in, and I'm at home. In your home, every one of you probably has a chair like that. The place you sit. It's a place of safety, It's a place of, and in your marriages, that's the same thing we want. We want intimacy. We want to abide. We want to know that kind of closeness. Because it's a picture of what we get to have, we get to portray to the world of Christ in the church.